Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Mann. Welcome, everyone, to the second panel of Carnegie Tsinghua Center's Global Dialogue Series. Uh, this panel, we're going to focus on China-India relations. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, and I'm glad today to be joined by Ashley Tellis and Professor Han Hua. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our Carnegie Global Dialogue Series, this is our eighth year at Carnegie Tsinghua Center in hosting these dialogues. It is a series of discussions examining China's evolving foreign policy, international role, and from the perspectives of Carnegie scholars at each of our centers around the world, along with Chinese scholars as well. We um, uh, are this morning are very fortunate, as I mentioned, to be uh, joined by Ashley Tellis, who is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs, now a senior and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and Professor Han Hua, who is Associate Professor and Director of the Center of Arms Control and Disarmament at Peking University School of International Studies. Let me just give a little bit more about each uh, of their backgrounds. Uh, Ashley uh, specializes in international security, US foreign and defense policy, a special focus on Asia, and in particular, the Indian subcontinent, which we'll talk about today. Uh, he was previously commissioned into the U.S. Foreign Service. He served as a senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador at the American Embassy in New Delhi in the Bush administration. He also served in the National Security Council during the Bush administration as senior director for strategic planning in Southwest Asia. He was on assignments to the Department of State as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. And during the Bush administration, he was very involved in negotiating the civil nuclear agreement between the United States and India. Prior to his time in government, Ashley was at the RAND Corporation, where he was senior policy analyst and a professor of policy analysis at the RAND Graduate School. Dr. Han Hua is, uh, we're, we're fortunate to have her back uh, with us this morning. She's been a participant in many of our previous Carnegie Global Dialogues. I think this is the first time that we're hosting her virtually. So thank you, Professor Han, for joining us. Professor Han teaches uh, courses in international relations on South Asia, international arms control, disarmament, nonproliferation, and US politics and foreign policies at Beijing University. She's been a visiting researcher at the Harvard uh, Belfer Center uh, and at Georgia Institute of Technology and also at CIPRI, the Stockholm Institute, uh, International Peace Research Institute in Sweden. She's led programs and projects on regional nuclear nonproliferation, on confidence building measures and nuclear disarmament. We're delighted that she's willing to join us again today. So thank you to both of you. So uh, last week uh, during our US-China discussions, uh, I spoke with Evan and Xietao about the current state of US-China relations we talked about the implications of a Biden victory. Uh, we're gonna do some of the same this morning with regards to US-India relations. I also wanna talk China-India as well. Uh, and I wanna talk broader geopolitical dynamics around all of those issues. 
So uh, let me keep it simple at the beginning. I wanna focus first on China, India. And I just wanna ask both of you, starting with Ashley, for your current take on the current state of relations between China and India. Ashley, over to you. Uh, thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be back here with you. And of course, with uh, Professor Han Hua, who is an old friend. Uh, it's unfortunate that at the moment, uh, Sino-Indian relations are in uh, serious trouble. In fact, I think uh, the most serious trouble between the two nations that we have seen uh, since, the, uh, since the 1980s uh, and possibly even beyond. And that's because there is a crisis on the border uh, that has still not been resolved. A crisis that uh, earlier this year resulted in uh, the first loss of life on both sides. Uh, a quite deliberate Chinese effort to uh, occupy territories that are disputed between China and India. And today, a crisis that has ended up with a very large military presence. Uh, we are talking of military presence in division strengths uh, in Eastern Ladakh, uh, troops facing each other in very close proximity uh, with real possibilities of an accident. Uh, this is obviously surprise. Uh, this is really a big surprise because neither side anticipated such a development, say even you know a year ago. Uh, but today we find ourselves in a crisis that has really uh, handicapped uh, diplomatic relations between the two countries and has embroiled the United States. And before I turn to Professor Han, um, you know, obviously the relationship in trouble and you mentioned the, the crisis on the border. Can you talk a little bit about how that's impacting the broader state of the relationship and other aspects within the bilateral relationship? Uh, so given that there has been now a militarized uh, dispute over territory, which has resulted, as I said, in the loss of life, uh, what has happened is that India has attempting to push China back uh, to restore the status quo ante uh, as it existed in March of this year. And in order to do so, what India is engaged in is a slow drip campaign of economic pressure. Uh, so uh, the Indians are hoping to avoid further escalation uh, through the use of military force. But they do want the Chinese to withdraw from territories that China has freshly occupied uh, since April of this year. And in an effort to do that, uh, they have undertaken a series of uh, economic measures. For example, uh, Indian government procurement of Chinese goods and services has virtually stopped. Uh, the Indians have banned several Chinese apps uh, from being used uh, in India. Uh, there are uncorroborated, uh, but possibly true, uh, stories about India making an effort to keep Chinese firms out of its 5G competition. And since this is an ongoing uh, process, the likelihood of further economic pain uh, is, is real. So India could do even more uh, in the economic uh, realm in an effort to push China back. Thank you for that. Um, setting the stage uh, for Professor Han, 
you know, I'd like to get your reaction and your current assessment of state of relations. I mean, Ashley painted a pretty grim picture, um, serious trouble. Um, the most trouble the relationship has been in since the 1980s with a conflict on the border, first loss of life. Do you see things, you know, equally serious in that regard? What's your own take? Sure. Uh, I also think uh, the relationship is uh, in a big trouble, but um, maybe not uh, uh, not that bad as I expected in the beginning, especially in June. Um, the, the bad thing is that um, after several decades of uh, engagement between these two countries based on the uh, consensus that is, uh, we are not going to let the uh, the cash on the border to be a kind of flashpoint for the overall bilateral relationship, but it is happening. That's so bad. And also, I think uh, the bad thing is that uh, China has taken a kind of approach to improve uh, political, economic, and uh, security relationship with India um, by improving the trade or economic linkage between these two countries. But this time, I, I think um, for many Chinese, uh, I think uh, it's a kind of erosion of that kind of uh, uh, confidence or faith in the bilateral relationship. But the problem is so bad, but fortunately at this stage, the two countries are still keep uh, um, communications uh, in different levels, uh, foreign affairs uh, ministers level, and also the local commander level, and also other uh, levels as well. So I don't think um, the two countries are ready to engage in a kind of a, a very hot conflict. But the problem is that uh, what, when and how they can get rid of this disengagement mm -hmm. or withdraw all the truth um, along the border. That's a problem. But so far, they, hadn't, they haven't uh, figured out how especially when they talk about the status quo, where they started, and also the land of actual control. The Chinese side talk about uh, 1959, uh, the land of actual control, but the uh, Indians uh, disagree with that and uh, deny that line. So the without uh, getting kind of uh, closer uh, agreement on those um, disputes. I'm not so sure when they can really put the troops out of the the, the borderline. And also, I, I really saw um, the very president, uh, I mean, the military buildup of military presence, as Ashley just mentioned, mm -hmm. along the border as now. Uh, very unfortunate development for me. So let, let, let me stay on this issue of the crisis on the border uh, for a little bit, because this is, 
very important in many regards. And as Ashley and you have both suggested, it's a, it's impacting the broader relationship. Uh, and there's the potential for some sort of accident that could really spiral out of control. I think so it's important to stay on this. And as I think back to last year's Carnegie Global Dialogue on China-India and the year before that, there was hope and optimism. Uh, two years ago was the uh, just coming out of the Wuhan summit where President Xi and, Pres and, and, and Prime Minister Modi met and we were talking about the Wuhan spirit. Uh, and this was really, um, you know, after border tensions with Doklam, coming out of that, getting the, re the renewed spirit, the Wuhan spirit, finding practical ways to work together uh, while at the same time dealing with challenges in the relationship. But I sensed, I sensed hope, I sensed optimism, and these border uh, conflicts that we have had over the past year seem to have really just pushed that all to the side, which is very unfortunate. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing going on um, in Beijing and in New Delhi over who is to blame for the conflict. I want to start with Professor Han. What is your sense of what's driving some of these dynamics from, from Beijing, from the Chinese side? Um, you know, what's driving the actions on the border? What's driving some of the PLA's more aggressive posture. And the reason that I ask is, you know, there's a lot of observers who see more aggressive actions by China with regard to Hong Kong, with regard to Taiwan, with regard to the South China Sea. And they wonder, should we put this in that same category of a more aggressive posture by China? How do you see this? Um. I, I saw some comments uh, coming from different countries, uh, including Ashley, right? Talking about uh, overall aggressiveness or assertiveness uh, in Chinese or foreign policy or foreign relationship. Um, but for me, I think uh, uh, that means maybe higher uh, pressure for the Chinese in terms of uh, a security environment and also some kind of political or narrative, uh, I mean, pressure about China's handling a pandemic, especially this year. So uh, I, I really uh, feel, unfortunately, um, the Wuhan spirit coming out of, just the coming out of uh, another uh, face off uh, at the Doklam, um, I mean, border, um, and the two leaders uh, are determined to put the bilateral relation back on track and also find more corporations rather than the disputes uh, in their relationship. Put, um, maybe not to improve that, uh, I mean, uh, bilateral relations, but uh, just to keep the bilateral relations uh, as, as good as possible, maybe stable, uh, is the expectation from the Chinese side. So uh, in overall uh, speaking, I don't think uh, Chinese uh, uh, actions uh, in the borderline is a kind of a, uh, reflect a Chinese overall aggressiveness, but uh, 
a kind of a reactive uh, uh, or countermeasures about the the Indian size uh, actions, especially the infrastructure build up and uh, really at some kind of a disputed area and also uh, some um, prices, uh, the personal prices, all the um, equipment and also the infrastructures. So that in that case, uh, for, for some Chinese, uh, the Indian is taking some kind of a real actions to change the, the status quo uh, and also um, do something, uh, I mean, to gain some advantage, strategic advantages along the Western border. Thank you I for mean, that. The, oh, sorry. Oh, uh, thank you for that. I want to, Ashley, turn that same, same question to you. Professor Han uh, described her sense that this is not part of a more aggressive posture by China. This is more part of reactive measures to what she described as Indian actions, China, building infrastructure on the, on, on, on the border, actions by India, and China's more in the reaction mode. What do you hear from, your, from counterparts in India? How do they see developments? How do you see developments uh, in that regard? What's, what's the driving factors here? Uh, so, uh, you know, this is now we are in the realm of perceptions on both sides, right? And the Indians, of course, have exactly the opposite perception uh, to what uh, Professor Han described. That is, they see themselves as the aggrieved party uh, simply responding to a Chinese military effort uh, to claim territories uh, physically uh, that they previously did not control. And whether this is linked to overall Chinese assertiveness that we have seen in other parts of the world, I think is a debate that is best left to historians because we are just too close to the events to be able to sort of tease them apart. But let me take you back to something that I think is far more fundamental and goes back a couple of decades. See, the Indians and the Chinese have disputed understandings of what the border actually is. And therefore, uh, since 1987, they've engaged in a process of dialogue, which led up to several agreements, which were supposed to build mutual confidence between the two sides. And the essence of the agreements essentially consisted of two or three key elements. One was that both sides would make a very serious effort uh, to physically delimit their perception of where the border lies. So to actually sit down and exchange maps, and both sides would exchange maps showing where their claim lines were. Uh, the idea of doing that was to sort of give people a concrete perspective of what the differences were physically on the ground. Now, unfortunately, this process, you know, sort of was interrupted or stopped without explanation uh, sometime in the last decade. And after an exchange of maps in the middle sector, so not in Ladakh and not in Arunachal Pradesh, but in a tiny sector of Himachal Pradesh in India, uh, China essentially aborted the process of delimitation. Now, the moment that happened, to my mind, the door was open to a crisis like this. Because if both sides do not know 
physically what their claims are relative to the claims of the other, then, you know, the kind of competitive patrolling that takes place in this in these parts would sooner or later lead to a crisis like this. So the second element, the second element of the confidence building measures was that patrol practices would continue as usual, but no one would attempt to sort of physically control territory that they claimed it, which was not recognized by the other. Uh, this time, uh, certainly since uh, March of this year, uh, China changed that practice because instead of simply patrolling or objecting to the Indian creation of structures that they may not have liked, uh, they physically emplaced themselves in strength and refused to move. Uh, in effect, not just simply claiming the territory politically, but actually physically trying to exercise control. And the Indians saw this, of course, as a complete change uh, from the agreements uh, that were previously levied. And then, of course, everything else followed. So I think in some sense, we have to ask the question of what led China a decade or so ago uh, to stop the practice of the, or stop the effort to delimit the lines uh, and then to respond in this more forcible way uh, mm -hmm. than it has not done in the past. And mm -hmm. that's really the question that I think everyone wants to know. Thank you. We have a, 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 a question from the audience uh, regarding this. And so I want to, I want to jump, put that right into the mix. And the question, Ashley, really for you, um, what are the domestic politics? How is how are these border skirmishes and the actions on the border affecting the domestic politics in India with regard to China? And how have those shifted? Is there a similar shift to what we see in the US where there's growing bipartisan consensus on the need for more um, you know, pushback with regard to China? Uh, that's actually a very interesting question. And many uh, many people have sort of wondered uh, whether Prime Minister Modi and the more muscular sort of Indian nationalism uh, that Prime Minister Modi represents uh, may have in some way contributed to this problem. Uh, my own reading is that it is unlikely for the simple reason that the entire Indian political spectrum uh, from Modi to the right, all the way to uh, the communist parties or whatever is left of them uh, at the extreme left. Uh, there is a unified view uh, that Indian territory must be protected uh, simply as a national venture. It's not the it's not the prerogative of a single party uh, or any or any uh, part of the Indian political spectrum. So there is a unification, in fact, of Indian politics uh, that this crisis has produced, uh, which we did not see prior to the crisis. There were deep divisions in India about politics because you know, <clears throat> he is a controversial figure. But uh, the Chinese actions since uh, April of this year have really unified Indian politics. And so you cannot find uh, any Indian political grouping uh, now showing any distance uh, from the reaction that, uh, from the policies that Prime Minister Modi has pursued. And this will make uh, things much more difficult to try to sort out on the border, and it gives Modi less maneuver room, I would argue, as well. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at this point, whatever his own personal inclinations are, and you know, we don't know what those are, uh, he simply cannot afford to retreat. 
first for national reasons, as I said, you know, the whole country is united behind the idea that Indian territory must be protected. And then secondly, for political reasons, that is, he cannot show his opponents that he has been less tough than somebody else might have been uh, with respect to protecting India's borders. Professor Han, a similar question to you then, uh, flipping that around. How have views in China changed? Are the domestic politics now hardened because of issues on the border? In India, there have been boycotts of Chinese products, as Ashley was referring to, blocking Chinese apps and technology. Um, you know, has there been a similar shift of views in, of, of India uh, among everyday Chinese citizens and how does it affect the domestic politics? Um, I think uh, nationalism is also um, part of the problem, especially uh, after the 2017 uh, Doklam uh, standoff uh, among the Chinese side. I think uh, it's the first time for me to say people talking about uh, the possibility to have uh, a hot conflict uh, with uh, India, because um, it's the first time for the Chinese to say the Indian troops uh, crossed the, the line, um, which is not a, a disputed borderline, cross the borderline and uh, stop the, the Chinese uh, equipment uh, from working. So that, that means uh, something very different from before. And also this time, uh, I think um, uh, India, uh, remember, uh, it's not only for the Chinese border, but uh, uh, Indian also had the border disputed. Uh, disputed uh, with uh, Nepal and also Pakistan. So talk, uh, talking them together, I think uh, people tend to, to believe uh, uh, in India, uh, Moody after the re-election with a big victory last year uh, made uh, a Moody more decisive when he uh, made a decision especially along the, the security issue, because uh, uh, in the manifesto uh, of a BJP party uh, during the champion, uh, I think uh, several, um, several issues appeared on the, in the manifestos, uh, which are potential flashpoints for the relationship between India and his neighbors. So, uh, uh, China-Indian border is only one of them because uh, the manufacturer talked too much about uh, security. Always security is the most uh, mentioned uh, term. Mm -hmm. Okay, look, before we get to talking about the Biden uh, victory and the impact uh, there, one final question on, on these border uh, issues, uh, and I'll start with Professor Han. And I just want to get a sense from you, uh, from your perspective, you know, what immediate steps could India take to try to contain the fallout from what's happening on the border? And then, Ashley, I just want to ask you the same question. What could Beijing do to really try to bring, bring some uh, stability to this situation? 
I think the, the first thing first is a tranquility. They have to restore the tranquility along the border and how to do that is to realize the neither side should take a, any step further to strengthen their advantage along the, the border and to just to restore um, the, the I, I don't know if we can say it's a consensus uh, uh, on the uh, how we can look at the uh, mutual accommodation, mutually accept the security uh, along the border. And also, I, I think uh, the first thing maybe for Indian to do is just uh, uh, disengage, withdraw the troops from maybe the the flash points and also maybe they, they can really take uh, some initiative to negotiate a kind of a buffer zone along the border ashley i i, I broadly agree with what uh, professor han has laid out uh, i think there has to be a mutual disengagement and it has to be mutual. It can't be one side going first, the other side going second. Uh, and beyond the disengagement, there has also got to be de-escalation because it's not simply moving back from the physical line that they are occupying, mm -hmm. but also withdrawing the massive number of troops uh, that have now been brought up uh, at operational depths, right? Mm -hmm. So these are mm -hmm. not troops that normally sort of reside in these territories. So if you want really a return to some sort of a peaceful equilibrium, you need to withdraw troops both from the front lines and the troops that are maintained in depth. So that's point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two, I don't see any alternative uh, to going back to implementing the confidence building measures that have been negotiated over the years. And that means a serious effort uh, to have discussions about uh, delimiting the lines. Because if you don't have that discussion and exchange of maps, clarity about what each side's claims are, and then a new set of protocols to define behaviors in those areas that are disputed, we are only setting the stage for a recurrence of this crisis down the line. Remember how this crisis came about. It came about because there are different perceptions of what constitute one's own territory. And because those perceptions have not been identified physically on a map and accepted by the other side, you are going to have intrusions, you are going to have competitive infrastructure buildups and so on and so forth. So I think at this point, it's really, uh, it's not really worth making the effort to simply create conditions for a new crisis. So we do the withdrawal first, we do the disengagement first, but then get back to the negotiations, which essentially have been suspended. Uh, with respect to delimitation since the mid 2000s since the uh, first yeah. decade of, you know the last well thank you for that um what i hear both of you are saying is immediate steps to stabilize the situation but ashley after that you say you got to roll your sleeves up and do the hard work so that it doesn't happen again uh, otherwise the potential for something happening again um is still there thank you for spending if I just want to make one more point, I mean, we are talking right now of a crisis only on one segment of the border, right? There are two yeah. other segments of the border, including a very big one in the Northeast, where if we had a recurrence of this kind of a crisis could be truly catastrophic. 
because yeah. thankfully the crisis in Eastern Ladakh is occurring in an area which is not populated. If you have a similar crisis in the Northeast where there are populations very close to the disputed lines, then I think we could end up in a, in a real pickle that, knows, that neither side wants. Well, thank you for, uh, I didn't plan to discuss the border issues uh, for that long, but this is, uh, but these are important uh, and they have broader implications for the bilateral relationship and for regional dynamics. And so thank you for that. I do wanna turn to a Biden victory. Uh, I will say the questions are coming in. And so uh, I'll ask each of you a question on the implications of Biden's victory. And then I'm, I wanna turn to the audience questions. Uh, Ashley, in a piece that you authored for this uh, publication, this compendium called Global Views of a Biden Presidency, a Carnegie Endowment series, and I'd encourage uh, viewers and listeners to, to, to take a look at that. It, it included articles from uh, many scholars at the Carnegie Endowment. You argued in your piece, Ashley, that the Biden administration will unquestionably good, be good for Washington in diverse ways. Uh, whether it can satisfy New Delhi's strategic interest regarding China-India relations remains a big question for Indian policymakers. Can you elaborate on that, this observation that you made in your piece? Of course. Uh, uh, you know, it's important to recognize that although Trump was very controversial and, uh, you know, disliked uh, in many parts of the world, uh, the one country that actually found his policies to be beneficial uh, to them was India. And the reason why New Delhi was gratified by Trump administration policies was, of course, because it took a very hard line on China and a very hard line on Pakistan. And both those obviously, uh, you know, are very consistent with India's own national objectives. Uh, the fear now in New Delhi, or at least the concern, is that if uh, a President Biden uh, adopts a, uh, a softer policy towards China, uh, it ends up reducing uh, India's maneuvering room. Uh, because you've got to understand the essence of Indian strategy here. Uh, what India wants uh, is to have a China that is balanced by other superior powers in order to create the room for India to have its own good relations with China. In other words, India wants China contained, but it wants other powers to do the containing. Mm -hmm. uh, if uh, President Biden uh, goes back to a softer China policy, then the burdens imposed on India to do the balancing increase. And I think that would be a second best uh, from New Delhi's point of view, not a first best. Trump was the first okay. because he took the lead in doing so. Interesting. I, I want to turn to Professor Han, but before I do so, I want to I want to dig down a little bit deeper on this, Ashley, because I argued about a year ago in a foreign affairs piece with my colleague Sam Bresnik that there were actually many in China who found a Trump presidency beneficial to China. These were more long-term strategic thinkers who see some of the damage that Trump has done to international credibility, US international credibility, undermining of our uh, important alliance structure, 
and the political dysfunction at home and in a more zero-sum context among Chinese strategic thinkers, this is good for China. Um, and uh, many in China actually see, uh, Chinese experts see a possibility that a Biden administration might be not softer on China, but in fact more effective in pushing back against China because as our colleague Evan Feigenbaum says, a Biden administration could be more successful at systematizing, institutionalizing, and multilateralizing a, uh, a pushing back on China. Is there any uh, of that view in India, or is the view mostly that there's a potential for Biden to be softer on China? No, I think if Biden ends up institutionalizing a tough anti-China policy, I think that's what New Delhi would welcome. What I think Delhi fears is that under the aegis of institutionalization, the policy becomes so nuanced that it actually becomes soft. That's the essence of the Indian fear. So they're not opposed to institutionalization. In fact, I think uh, the Indians see very clearly that Trump's foreign policies had many liabilities including the weakening of US alliances. But what they want is the best of both worlds. They want an institutionalization, a more rational, a more sensible policy, but they want it to be a tough policy all the same. Yeah. You know, the Chinese are hoping for a reset in US-China relations back to a previous time, you know, more similar to Obama and Biden, uh, 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 Bush. My sense is that the Biden team will push back against any notion of a reset. And I think they want a tougher, more effective policy. Whether that can be uh, executed is, is another question, but I think that's what they're going for. Professor Han, you have spoken about India's shifting alignments toward the United States as a result of intensified geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, what impact do you think the Biden Biden's victory uh, and a Biden administration will have on China-India relations? And how will it inform Beijing's relationship with India going forward? Uh, I have to put this question in two levels. The first level is a security or strategic uh, level. In that level, I haven't seen uh, much difference between um, between Biden and Trump, um, because I still think uh, during the the Trumpian period of time, uh, Biden has shown, um, I mean, his uh, willingness to see a very close uh, is a closer uh, strategic partnership with India, and also he says. Uh, India is a uh, very crucial, uh, I mean, uh, important, uh, important uh, partner. Um, but um, Biden has said that uh, uh, China is not a rivalry or adversary, but a strategic competitor. So that makes a little bit difference uh, between Biden and Trump administration. That may, uh, may, may mean some changes, but uh, at the uh, 
strategic level, I haven't seen much difference. I still think, uh, like uh, Obama administration at that time, Biden was the vice president and also took uh, some very important role, uh, played a very important role in the firm policy uh, decision makings uh, during uh, Obama administration. And also I saw uh, Biden was the person who uh, helped the Congress, uh, Congress to pass uh, the the nuclear deal. So mm -hmm. I haven't seen much difference between uh, Biden and Trump at that level. And also, I think uh, uh, the uh, Biden's approach uh, has been more. Um, I mean, the the competitor dealing with the computer uh, com strategic competitor uh, with more uh, aligned alignment oriented uh, rather than the unilateral one um, but at the same time i also say uh, have seen um, biden's criticism uh, of the um, moody's uh, domestic politics especially when he talks about uh, the citizenship amendment act and anti-muslim um, actions uh, and also kashmir handling uh, is a quite, um, I mean, militarized uh, way to to crack down the the uh, resentment. So in that case, I saw in the ideological and the human rights uh, aspect, I saw uh, I see some maybe potential uh, potential uh, disputes between these two countries, but. Uh, I mean, like uh, Trump administration also had some uh, dispute uh, on the trade issues. Even they talk about a closer uh, relationship with India. And also the legacy of um, Trump uh, has an impact on the uh, further uh, relationship between the United States and India, especially after signing the fundamental agreements, meal-to-meal uh, -meal, uh, agreements, I don't think, um, I mean, on the security level, the, the two countries will um, diverge to different directions. Thank you. We've got a question um, from SS. I'm not sure who SS is, but that's his uh, handle. Uh, Dr. Tellis, could you say something about Japan's preferences with regard to the China-India tensions, where do they converge with India's preferences? Where do they where do they diverge with India's preferences? That's from SS. I'm going to then ask a follow-on question for Professor Han uh, regarding the Quad. Um, you know, we've seen some uh, movements on the Quad. The foreign ministers met. This seems to have been brought back up after being dormant for a while. The Trump administration has been very interested and active on this. Um, and I wonder whether you expect the Biden administration to do the same and what are the implications for China? But let me start with Ashley on Japan. Uh, sure. Uh, if the public statements of the Japanese government in the last several months, anything to go by, uh, Japan has expressed full solidarity with India uh, in the context of the current crisis with China. 
And I think that is because both Japan and India see the current crisis as part of larger Chinese assertiveness, uh, to which both have been victim in different ways. So as far as uh, Tokyo is concerned, uh, they see India as a very important partner in creating a larger set of Asian alignments uh, that would balance China. Now, the Japanese are very realistic about this. They are not talking of containment. They are not talking of some sort of coordinated military mechanism. But they do want uh, to put in place a diplomatic mechanism, and the Quad is the most prominent diplomatic uh, mechanism at hand, that allows Japan, India, and ideally Australia and the United States to cooperate in sort of building a diplomatic bulwark against uh, what they see as clear Chinese assertiveness. So there is really no, uh, there's really no space between uh, Japan's and India's position uh, on, on Chinese assertiveness at the moment. Professor Han? Um, I, I haven't seen much progress uh, in the development of the Quad, especially uh, even people talk about uh, after 2017, um, the upgrade uh, of the levels, I mean, talk uh, between uh, foreign ministers uh, among the four uh, at the UN, uh, UN assembly, the sideline. Uh, and also I have seen the, the court um, hold uh, uh, Malabar um, joint exercise, but except uh, that those um, actions, I haven't seen much institutionalized uh, actions among the four, uh, and I don't think um, the the court means uh, quite a lot when they talk about the uh, collaboration uh, among the four countries together to do something against China. Um, it's not uh, going to um, to be happening in the future, um, but I I think uh, the the court is more like a, a political coalition rather than military. Even even they talk about about uh, but the, the uh, let let me add something. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, because. Uh, uh, among the analysts uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, the Americans, um, uh, you, you talk about uh, some kind of a deterrence plan in Asia Pacific uh, in the future. Uh, you think it's a kind of a bipartisan and also kind of a consensus, again, from the recent uh, discussions. Um, I, I'm not so sure. Um, Biden administration will follow that uh, concept, but uh, that uh, means uh, some um, directions uh, for the way uh, for the new administration to do in this region um, deterrence rather than rather than uh, defeating or some come Thank you for that. We'll, we'll shift from security to trade. Uh, we have a question from Himar Singh, uh, and he wants the views of the experts on the following question. 
By leaving RCEP, India has left the playing field open to China. We know that RCEP was just concluded. India was part of those negotiations, um, but stepped out um, more recently. The deal is concluded with China, but without India. How do you think by joining the R by by uh, by joining the RCEP, India could have disciplined China and transparent trade practices? So the question is basically, without India in RCEP, uh, is India leaving the playing field open to China, and has it lost an opportunity to be part of setting uh, standards and practices in the region on trade? Ashley, first to you. Uh I think it's actually a very good question, but the dilemma that the Indian government was facing was whether it was domestically prepared to make, to bear the costs that were required to sort of set these standards uniformly. In other words, uh, the government of India sees Indian industry as still being not particularly competitive. And their fears were, that if, were, if they were to join RCEP as originally intended, they would be opening the Indian market uh, to Chinese imports at a time when India could not compete. And so they made a very difficult decision, which is to give up several years of negotiating capital and keep the Indian economy closed, or at least continue to keep it closed, rather than open that economy, pay the costs uh, in terms of competitiveness in order to preserve this larger Asian regime uh, of higher standards. Having said that, though, uh, there is a huge asterisk here. One should not overestimate uh, the depth of RCEP as a truly significant uh, free trade organization. It's a very shallow agreement. It's a very shallow agreement, certainly in comparison to TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the US and its Asian partners have negotiated. So it, RCEP will definitely be an improvement, but I don't think it will be that great an improvement uh, as people sometimes fear. However, the downside for, for India from a purely narrow economic perspective was quite significant. That's why the Modi government walked out from the agreement at the last minute. Professor Han, um, your reaction to that, but Ashley also mentioned the CPTPP, um, and we have seen, you know, indications from China that there's interest in China joining the CPTPP. There would there would have to be a lot of uh, uh, reforms on the Chinese side to be able to do that. Um, how serious are those signals? Uh, and is China prepared to do the work to get to the point where it could join the CPTPP? Um, it's a very challenging question because I think um, um, after the RCEP, I think uh, overall um, the Chinese approach uh, in terms of a trade relationship, economic relationship with uh, the regional uh, countries like, uh, uh, I mean, Asia Pacific, uh, ASEAN plus three, had, I mean, that kind of relationship has been uh, settled and also provide China as a political base, uh, economic base or trade base uh, for his uh, reaching out to other countries. 
but the, uh, now the question is about the C uh, CPTPP. Uh, after withdrawal of Trump from that uh, regime, I, I think um, China has a uh, has uh, taken very serious uh, consideration um, if that regime is uh, uh, compatible with the Chinese, uh, I mean, economic uh, reform framework. I think now China has already made the decision to to join that that uh, um, regime because China uh, that some kind of a criterias uh, if you uh, join that uh, regime that means you you have to really make a decision to to do reform for example the uh, the state-owned enterprises right. and the human rights or other and um, the uh, intellectual uh, rights, uh, some s those um, problems, China uh, by any way, drawing or join uh, or not drawing, have has to deal with those issues because it's uh, really pushing Chinese uh, to a kind of a neck uh, neck neck necklace. To, to move forward uh, if they they really want to have a, a kind of um, economic uh, development, uh, sustainable de development. Thank you for that, uh, Professor Han. We, we have uh, one, one final question before I pose the final question myself for the panel from uh, Hab Hamad Shanel. Uh, he's uh, interested in Pakistan and the complex India-China-Pakistan trilateral dynamics. Um, can, can both of you offer some insight on the past and future of the India-Pakistan-China triangle, how this uh, may have resulted in further strategic mistrust between Beijing and New Delhi? And uh, I'll start with Professor Han. Yeah, that that's, uh, is uh, very difficult. Uh question because uh, whenever we talk about um, uh, sino india or uh, sino pakistan um, people tend to to talk about uh, southern asia that means uh, put the triangle relations together um, so uh, let, let me make it clear i think um, um, after the end of the cold war china has taken a kind of a um, separate or um, separate uh, approaches toward those uh, South Asian countries. Uh, Pakistan as a special, uh, I mean, partnership uh, with China. And I mean, China has, uh, um, I mean, developed or improved uh, relationship with Pakistan, but at the same time, China has taken steps uh, to improve uh, uh, trade and uh, economic relationship with uh, with India. So um, maybe uh, different approaches, uh, but the, at the same time, I think uh, China tried uh, has tried uh, to keep the relations uh, uh, as good as possible at the same time. 
Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, some some new changes uh, in India really um, make the relationship uh, uh, toward uh, Pakistan even worse, especially mm. after the, the the change of the constitution and uh, divided into two territories uh, uh, of. Uh, Kashmir, so uh, that that really make the um, the stabilize the little bit uh, bilateral relations uh, now in the flashpoint. That that's a uh, very bad, uh, and also uh, India is uh, facing off uh, at the borderline with China. So at that at this juncture, I think the bilateral relations. You, you can say even closer relationship between China and Pakistan. And uh, so I think if we take that kind of a strategic triangle way or model, you can say uh, a kind of a, a stable marriage <laughs> model. Thank you. Appeared. Thank you. Uh, Ashley, just a few brief thoughts. Yeah, I think at this stage, I, I think uh, Professor Han is right. China's intention was to try and maintain uh, even-handed relations with, uh, with India and Pakistan. But I think that uh, intention has not been realized in practice because it is, it is a complicated, uh, it's a complicated intention to realize. And I think today, both at the Pakistani end and at the Chinese end, uh, there is a clear sort of view that a closer China-Pakistan relationship is in the strategic interests of both sides. And that automatically is seen as threatening by India. And it also has knock-on effects on US policy in the region. So I would just simply say that the Chinese intention uh, to treat India and Pakistan in a more balanced way is further and further away from realization at this point in time. Okay, thank you to both of you. I'm gonna end our discussion this week the same way that I ended the discussion last week in US-China um, by asking both of you to look into your crystal ball and make some predictions. Uh, we've talked about China-India relations. We had border conflicts in Doklam. Uh, we then saw temporarily stabilizing relationships after informal summits in Wuhan and in India between the two leaders. And now, as Ashley started the, by describing, the relationship is in serious trouble. I just want to get a sense from you in a year from now, uh, where will the relationship be? And what would it take from the leadership in each country to put the relationship on better footing? Professor Han, I'll start with you. Uh, I hope the, the leader in Beijing will really step up in, uh, into the, um, the, the strategic uh, thinking about uh, how um, the two Asian giants can work together and to keep the relations as stable as possible. Uh, because they have already shown uh, the, the world, they, they wanted to do something together, even the, the harsh uh, issue like anti-terrorism or other uh, issues um, in the economic uh, perspective. So 
but but the problem is uh, the first thing first uh, for the two leaders uh, in these countries, the two leaders are very strong at the, those uh, this moment, but how uh, they can really take advantage of the strong uh, leadership, they can work together to solve that problem first. Thank you very much. Uh, Ashley? Well, my crystal ball shows only deep shades of gray. Uh, and, and the reason for that on both uh, the India-China and the US-China uh, front is the same. On the India-China front, I think Beijing has taken a huge risk in imperiling the bilateral relationship with India for what I see as completely marginal gains. I mean, I think the territories that China occupies have no intrinsic value other than to simply irritate uh, the Sino-Indian relationship. And the way China has sort of invested now in bolstering the front uh, suggests to me that it plans to be there for the long term. So the only thing that changes China's course is if there are either external pressures on China that require it to economize on the efforts being made versus India, or if there is some dramatic new opportunity in terms of a breakthrough with India, which then induces China to sort of create the conditions by withdrawal. I don't see any of these two hypotheses as capable of being realized in the near term. So I think the prospects there are bleak. Uh, on the US-China side, I think there will be a restructuring of the relationship and the patterns of competition, but I don't see the elimination of competition. And as long as that remains the dominant reality, then I think the US-India partnership will deepen, uh, the India-China rivalry will deepen, and the US-China rivalry uh, will continue to sort of remain unabated uh, you know, in some form of fashion. And that's pretty much what I see the future for the next for the next year. Well, thank you to both of you uh, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for sharing your own insights and perspectives. I want to thank everyone who's been watching this morning, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion and the opportunity to ask questions in real time to uh, Ashley Tellis and Professor Han Hua. Be sure to check out the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's website at carnegietsinghua.org and the Carnegie Endowment's website as well. And subscribe to the China in the World podcast if you have not done so already. Thank you again. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. And of course, during this global pandemic, stay healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to CarnegieChinghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Chayan, with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Chi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.